Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Are you ready to challenge a rhetoric? Today is Wednesday, February 2nd, 2017. My name is Sherry Roberts, and you're listening to Challenging the Rhetoric. Thanks for tuning in. Tonight, leading cyber forensic expert, Frederick Lane, will join us to discuss the lingering allegations regarding Russia's potential interference in our presidential election, our democracy. What are the forensics involved in proving such a thing to be true? What are the implications that the allegations are indeed true? National security is on our radar tonight. Welcome to the show. This week, I've been asking, what does a Trump presidency mean or say about us as a nation? Tonight, we'll look at the situation from a cybersecurity perspective related to national security. If Russia did hack our democracy, what would be the ramifications? What else is vulnerable to hacking or attack under a president who seems kind of off his crackers and fond of his personal android, you know, known as personal security teams? As always, we really have a lot to talk about. If you'd like to participate with us during the live broadcast, you can join us in the chat room on Blog Talk Radio forward slash Challenging the Rhetoric with Sherry Roberts. Just click on episode number 48, and the chat room should load beneath the slider. You can also tweet to us at CTR Newsfeed. Be sure to visit the website and Facebook page at challengingtherhetoric.news. Tonight, we're using the hashtags. Are you ready for this? <laughs> CTR, cybersecurity, and Russian hacking. And then you want to make sure you hit that Trump Russia hashtag out there. Remember, this is a dialogue, not a debate. Our guest tonight is a recurring guest. Frederick Lane is an expert in computer and cyber forensics. He's also a respected attorney and the author of nine books on the impact of emerging technologies on society, with a particular emphasis on privacy and the culture wars. Lane has also written a number of magazine articles on a variety of topics, including constitutional rights, particularly freedom of speech, privacy online, the impact of technology on our rights and liberties, and the separation of church and state, which, by the way, President Trump this morning said he was going to remove that separation. The Trump's promise wall, Muslim ban, allegations about him and Russia, and his dizzying array of bad executive orders. I think the United States is more vulnerable today than ever before. What say you, Frederick Lane? Welcome back to the show. Sherry, thanks once again for having me on. It's always a pleasure. I love having you on. You're just so full of information uh, and you just, you have a great personality. You come across well to the listeners. You're, you're believable. You're friendly. <laughs> you don't talk over people's heads. That's really important. You know, a diverse well, audience and um, you can, you can speak lay terms that make sense to pretty much everybody. So thank you. Uh, no worries. So um, let's, let's kind of, let's just jump right out on, on this. You know, right now we have a president, in my opinion, that's spreading, you know, obviously racism and hate, all these executive orders, the wall, the Muslim ban, are we more vulnerable? Let's let's talk about this first before we get into the Russian thing. Are we more, more vulnerable to cyber attacks from foreign entities because of what he's doing and, and the atmosphere in which he's creating right now? Well, there's there's two different answers, Sherry, to your to your question. Um, the first we have to evaluate is the is the technical end of things, and the answer there would be that there's nothing intrinsic in what this president has done over the last two weeks that makes us more more vulnerable from a technological perspective, with one specific exception, and that is the slowness with which this administration has filled the necessary positions to make this government work efficiently. And unless, you know, Mr. Bannon and Mr. Miller and Mr. Kushner have technological skills about which I am ignorant, um, I don't think that they necessarily are showing the kind of leadership that we need in order to make sure that we are secure from a uh, cyber perspective. The other piece of your, the other answer to your question, though, is: Are there things that this administration are doing, is doing, 
that would make it more likely that people would want to attack us from a cyber perspective. And that's going to be purely a matter of opinion, right? I, I totally respect that we have a range of, of opinion among the listeners. I would argue that when you create um, antagonism, good grief. I mean, when you insult the Australians of all people, um, <laughs> then you're creating an environment in which you know, you're going to motivate people to test out this administration. Every administration gets tested. That's just the nature of the beast. You know, the, the world, particularly the actors who are not particularly um, on our side, they want to see how we're going to respond. And that brings us back to the staffing issue and the competence issue. It's all tied together. So if you have someone or a group of people, an insular group of people who are creating global antagonism and they're not prepared to deal with some of the threats that might arise, I think that creates a very a very dangerous situation. When when we're looking at um let's let's just talk about just pissed off people, not necessarily government <laughs> entities, but pissed off people <laughs> in other countries. Okay. Not not even yeah. not even ISIS even, you know, not even something organized, just the lone wolfers out there that that are highly insulted um or or heavily uh, well, impacted by the travel. And I'm sorry, but let's Let's remember one very important thing. You know, you, he insulted the 400-pound people sitting in their bedrooms. <laughs> I, would, I will crazy. tell you that every <laughs> every overweight hacker in the world was pissed off. By, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, you know, right so, now there was a. Fred, there was a poll today, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit later, but there was a poll today, and it's yeah. already four four in 10 are ready to impeach. Four in 10. I mean, what, he's like, what, less than a dozen days in or something like that since he was sworn in? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I, I have to tell you, from my perspective, every single day for the last several days – um, you know, since since last Friday forward, I have I mean, it's all been crazy. But just this last several days, I've been like beside myself. I'm just amazed at the the pace, the pace and and the arrogance and the stupidity type of arrogance, because it's it's very foolhardy. It's I mean, you know, hombres, you know, I'm going to send our military in. I mean, what, what the hell is that kind of shit? So when we're talking about pissing people off, it doesn't have to be an organized group or anything for people to. Uh, you know, lone wolfers want to hack in and, and cause great harm to the United States because of because of some of the stuff that's going on. What kind of things outside of like specific attacking government entities, what kind of things would you would you think what could happen? I mean, there's a lot of different kind of scams that go on. There's a lot of different, oh. you know, phishing schemes oh. and stuff like that. Yeah, well, look, Sherry, at the start of this, you know, you told me this is only an hour long. That actually is a, that's a multi-day conversation, to be fair. Okay, look, the, 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 the taxonomy, if you will, of potential threats starts with organized um, states, right? You've got Russia, you've got, you know, the Iranians, you've got the Chinese, all people with enormously skilled um, computer, you know, for lack of a better term, hackers, but, you know, people with mad computer skills. And that's not to say that they don't exist in the United States. And, and we do some of this as well. But then within that, you've got non-organized, you know, states like ISIS and um, God, who knows what other kind of groups out there. You've got organized crime syndicates that are interested in various kinds of data. You've got, you know, you've got specific hackers, you know, and groups like Anonymous. I mean, there's, there's the range of potential threats is staggering. And I think one of the things that people really lose sight of is that there's been a democratization of hacking tools. And what I mean by that, I'm, I'm using not, believe me, not Democrats, because we're too incompetent to get anything like this done, but the small d democratization, the idea that what it used to take someone with 15 or 20 years of computer experience to do is now available to some kid who clicks on a website and downloads a distributed denial of service attack kit. You know, so basically he, he runs this piece of software and, and is able to do what it would have taken anonymous 10 years ago to do. Now, God only knows, you know, the range of options that a group like Anonymous has available to it. 
But the fact that you can get some disaffected 12-year-old who can do this on, you know, his MacBook Pro is just terrifying. And, and yes, we're able to put a clamp on things like nuclear fissionable material, right? We've done a relatively good job of that. And, you know, I, I think the Obama administration, when history gets written, assume, you know, assuming we're around to do that, when it gets written, they will get a lot of credit for having done yeoman's work in rounding up the loose bits of fissionable material that were floating around the world. Software is different. Software is not corralable in that way. And so no, the threat actually from software vastly outpaces what can be done, you know, with more militaristic weapons. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's really, it's it. very disturbing. Yeah. It's disturbing because it's in perpetuity. It's like other things that we've talked about on, on previous shows, oh, like, sure. right. like the, the continuous crime of child pornography. It's a crime that never ends because these things on like revenge yeah. porn, these things, once they're online, um, you know, whether it's software, you know, like you're talking about and, and, and viruses, it's just there. It's, it's there forever. Yeah. So, and that, actually, Sherry, means... if you don't mind, huh? oh, I'm sorry. Let, let me just interject one thing before we go much further, because I, I do want your listeners to think about the fact that I am actively working to rebrand this. It's not revenge porn because a lot of times it doesn't have anything to do with the pornography industry whatsoever. And what I'm yeah. trying to get people to recognize it's is that it's crime. electronics. No, it's electronic sexual assault. It is a form Absolutely. of sexual assault. And we can use that structure to punish people. I, I, I firmly believe that. Oh, I, I would really love to do a show on that whole topic, Fred. I mean, because, and I know we're veering off a little bit, but that's that's very yeah, important yeah. Uh, distinction, which yeah. you're making there, because what people don't understand is, again, what I said about the imperpetuity aspect of the internet. Mm -hmm. And once you're infected, uh, you know, affected and impacted, um, it's just, it's, it's forever. So let's, I, I want to talk about um, the potential, the allegations that, you know, our election was, was hacked um, and stuff like that. So before we get into specifically this last election, from your cybersecurity perspective, your computer forensics, how easy mm -hmm. is vote hacking, vote rigging? For for many, many years, I remember um, Al V. Gore, you know, I mean, I, I mean, Bush V. Gore, <laughs> I, there was Al V. Gore, <laughs> Bush V. Gore, you know, and, and all the problems in Ohio. And then, then you had Bev Harris and Black Box voting. And for the listeners, if if you're concerned about our elections in general and what happens here in America, I can tell you a, a great person to follow on Twitter and you can get to their website via that. And that is at the Brad blog, Brad Friedman. I've known him for many, many years. He is really, really on top of this. And regardless of his own politics, he keeps the, the issue of what he's delving into with regards to our elections for all these years very um bipartisan and it, it just very worth worth a follow but fred so um vote hacking and rigging from the computer's perspective with this digital technology and how things are and and vastly and quickly changing and growing is it possible mm -hmm. okay so theoretically yes. is it pro theoretically okay, yes so it so let me let me is it but let me interject Okay, but go when ahead. you answer this question, when you answer this question, yeah. I want to go back to when you were talking about, you know, 12 and 15 year olds. Is it possible that even kids that are, you know, very, you know, tech savvy, you know, that that could do something like that? Or do they have to be highly sophisticated organizations? Sorry. No, that's quite all right. Let me just let me just preface this answer with one bit of personal history. Um, I lived up in Burlington, Vermont for 23 years, give or take, um, before moving down to Brooklyn. And I, during that time, I spent six or eight years as a ward clerk in the neighborhood in which I lived. And basically as ward clerk, I was in charge of the local polling place for my neighborhood. And it was a really, really wonderful uh, introduction to how elections work. And you can take my personal experience and multiply it by tens of thousands, and that's what's happening around the country. To answer your question, what you need to know is that people vote in myriad different ways. And so you've got um, mechanical systems that are still being used in cities like New York and 
you know, to some extent in Chicago, some of these bigger cities where they haven't had the money yet to replace things. In slightly smaller cities, you've got the mechanical or the paper ballots being replaced with electronic voting booths. And then in the smaller communities like Burlington um, and, and others of that size, you've got what are called the, the optotrons or the scanatron systems where you mark a piece of paper and it reads the votes off of that. The good thing about even the mechanical systems or the paper systems is that you, you've got a trail in terms of what actually took place, how the votes were actually cast. The concern over the electronic systems is that many of them don't generate a paper record. And that's a huge problem. I think that that's absolutely unacceptable. You need um, there to be some physical record of the vote. Um, some of these systems, to be fair, do generate a, you know, basically like a, a, a receipt from a store that the voter can take with them that shows you know, literally how they voted. Those electronic systems are not, I mean, they're like any other electronic system, Sherry, of course, right? They're vulnerable to right. software glitches. They're vulnerable to failed security patches. Many of, the, many of the voting systems themselves are isolated, which means that they don't have an internet connection, which means it is much, much more difficult to hack them during the course of an election. A couple of areas of vulnerability that are important, though, is when the votes are being tallied, because eventually that electronic data has to be consolidated in a central place, usually some kind of state government server of some kind. Then the question becomes, is that server secure? Is it necessarily going to protect the votes? Can people get in? Could things be tweaked that way? And that was one of the concerns about some of the tallies that were being generated during this past election, because some of them just did not seem to make sense. So there seemed to be sort of consistent patterns of glitches. I want to be absolutely clear that nothing I have read about would in any way have changed the outcome of the election. There were just things that didn't look right that we should understand better before we do this. The last thing I will say with respect to all of this is that if you've got a a limited number of companies that are producing these electronic voting machines, are we confident that the software that is being written for those machines in the first place is not somehow being tweaked in a fashion a that would, it, well, not even a backdoor, that it's literally programmed to turn over, say, 4% of every vote total. You know, that's the kind of thing that would be very difficult to determine. And, and it's actually one of the reasons that I think any company that is producing software for elections should make its code open source, that you should not have proprietary code being used for elections. Paper is not proprietary, right? Everybody can right. see <laughs> what the votes look like. Look, but when you've got software, right. it's just... You know, it's it's again, it's the corp, and this is a whole nother show we can do. But it is the corporatization of American life, and I'm 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 deeply concerned about that. Yeah, I I have a lot of deep concerns, especially as of late. <laughs> you know, I have to say, I I'm I'm very well known and very well on the record for having been very anti George W. Bush, and I mean, to me, he was the epitome of all evil. And I've I've mellowed well, over the years. <laughs> I still I still don't like him as as a president. That was premature, I, I, now wasn't it? <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah, I mean, I I feel like you know, ten years and 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 stuff ago, or ten fifteen years ago, well, nine eleven, you know, um, that I feel after all of that. I mean, I have grown in so many different ways, and I've learned a lot of things. But I was wholly unprepared for this Trump presidency. And let me tell you why, real quick, and then and then I want to jump into Russia. And I think this is important for the listeners to understand is that a lot of people that are Trump supporters that voted for Trump um, are people that kind of came from where I came from after 9-11, different activist groups and movements that I had been a part of and ones I didn't even know about. But that same feeling and momentum had started had started growing. And in that world, there was a lot of conspiracy stuff going on, spe specifically initially about 9-11, but then all the all the hoaxer talk and the crisis actor actors and stuff started happening. And what I started noticing is like there was this definite um, 
you know, like, I don't know. I mean, people like just started changing very rapidly at this certain point. And a lot of those people, when they were pumping conspiracies and out in the street and marching, they're talking about the martial law. We've heard this all before. They're talking about, you mm-hmm. know, the, sure. the, you know, the elites and all of this. They're talking about all the things that are actually going down now. And for some reason, they're, they're totally okay with it. And, and I don't, and I, it's like the self-fulfilling prophecy. And I, I I'm like baffled at what has happened there is a complete and utter mental problem happening anyways let's talk about russia um do you you know (laughs) so but really i want to i want to talk about russia i just had to say that because it's been driving me crazy and you know whatever but um if if russia there's a lot of things especially as trump continues day after day that are boating uh, jibing with that 35 page dossier you know as far as some of the things that trump's rolling out you know the the you know the the, the lessening of the sanctions with russia you know and so on and so forth and there's there's some also reporting that has been shared in legacy media um of an article i talked to mark Sade, your friend of mine yesterday um, right. yeah. about it's yeah. called trial balloon for a coup and they're talking about in that dossier yeah, a that. very specific yeah. yeah a very specific amount of money and then lo and behold and all these things are happening so let's say let's say russia interfered with our election in some way is it going to be trackable and if so what are some of the mechanics of that well <laughs> it's a fairly broad question. Um, Calgon, look, take me away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Really. Uh, okay. Let's let's talk about let's define our terminology, okay? Because interfered with is not synonymous with hacking, as we use that term, right? I mean, because the kinds of hacking that we're talking about in terms of um, voting machines or things like that relatively unlikely low-level impact at this particular point because the percentage of purely electronic machines is really quite low. So that's not the hacking, honestly, that worries me. The the kind of hacking that I would, or the way that I would define the term hacking is almost in the life hack sense, you know, because what Russia did was to use, and I believe this, I, I, I don't think there's any, any serious question about it, but they, they used very sophisticated methods of interference with the political process in terms of things like fake news, uh, the promotion of antagonistic you know, bloggers, the, the, the denigration of um, the Democrats, the you know, to, whether or not you could trace the the break into the DNC to them, that that probably is the biggest uh, traditional hacking question that we need to answer. But I don't think that there is any question that there was a campaign to aggressively interfere with the process of the American election over the last year, and I don't think that there's any real question that that interference was aimed at helping a specific candidate. Okay, so let me point out to the listener that maybe has not heard you on my show in the past. Fred, um, a lot of a lot of the stuff in, in your books, particularly, uh, Fred has a lot of books, and I and I'll I'll put those links out there for you, and you should je- definitely check out many of the the Cybertrap series and stuff. But the thing is, is that Fred is also, as I as I did in the introduction, he's a, a, a big proponent of of our of our constitutional rights, and um and a lot of his books also are not just talking about the problems out there in the cyber world, but they're talking about just how you as a person cannot get kind of trapped cyber trapped into them mm. by default <laughs> and um you know, because right. i think like especially in the educated you know in the educator world and you know and stuff like that it's very easy to get caught up in something without realizing what you're doing and the legalities and those fine lines but so with what we're talking about I value your opinion because I, I always feel that you are very fair, um, regardless of whatever your personal politics are. You're very, very fair and stuff. And I think that when you're talking about the fake news and Russian involvement in that, I think the next thing that that 
that goes into is this whole freedom of speech thing. I know mm -hmm. lots of people that <laughs> produce fake news. I mean, realistically, uh, the internet is bad as a whole. Don't get me wrong. But as I pointed out last night and probably several times on my show, the real cesspool is YouTube. And, um, you know, fake news, it just abounds everywhere. And the people that believe it, the people that believe it are true, true believers of it. So mm -hmm. it's a problem that we have. It's obviously it involves the internet, the perpetuation of it and all, and, you know, and so, so how do we, you know, I mean, we want to have a free internet. We want to be able to speak our mind. We want to be able to do our things, right. but sure. what can we do to, I mean, we're obviously not going to be able to educate everybody in the world and like, hey, this is fake news. You know, <laughs> it hasn't worked right. yet. So no, what's the and, answer and, to that and, without and... stepping on all of our liberties, Fred? Sure. <laughs> Sherry, um, for starters, thanks for the affirmation, because this this is stuff that I take very, very seriously. And and I am a, you know, for those of your listeners who haven't had a chance to read the stuff I've written, I am a huge First Amendment fan. And more importantly, I am very pro-technology, pro-internet. I think that when you do the balance of good and bad, you know, the internet is way in the positive range. I think that the the negative aspects of the internet that we are dealing with are manifestations of the negative aspects of humanity, right? I mean, these when we talk about people misusing sex or misusing speech for hate or things like that, these are old problems simply in a new medium. So it's not the internet's fault per se that we have these problems. The answer to your question is is challenging because it it would require a commitment on the part of the American public to a much more thorough, much better educational system. Because the way to fight fake news is to improve the, the critical thinking in this country. My wife is a professor. Um, she is very fond of pointing out that one of the best indicators of alignment in the last election is a college degree, that that that, that made a huge difference. And it's not to say that you once you get a college degree, you never vote Republican again. Of course, that's not true at all. <laughs> but in terms, uh, no, and I, and um, look, my parents are Republicans, okay? I know, I know plenty of, of solid, thoughtful, respectful Republicans who are committed to the health and well-being of this nation. That being said, <laughs> in terms of falling for fake news or believing outright lies by a candidate for president of the United States, people are less likely to do so if they have some exposure to a liberal arts education. And it, it, it's, and, and that being said, Sherry, because I think it is important, I, I appreciate your comment about fairness because I think that's critical. Many, many of the people who voted for Trump did so not because they believed what he was saying, but because they were, number one, so fundamentally angry with how things were going in terms of the economy and so forth. And secondly, because they thought the alternative was not that much better, if at all. And that's a legitimate like political to decision to make. Now. The third thing What's is that? fear and a fear of fear and, well, and fear sure, has sure. fear since since September 11, 2001. Fear has been marketed to this country who and, and, and yeah. I've challenged before there. There is probably few people in the United States of America and people outside this country who do not have some form of PTSD from what happened that day. Plain and simple. And that fear mm -hmm. has I started sure. with the White House Iraqi group and went from there. So, I mean, you know, there's it, there's a pandering that takes place. And I agree with you about an education. One thing that I want to say that that a liberal arts education and, and, and college education in general doesn't give somebody. And I think that that's rearing its head the most in these last few years and with this presidency is all the people around the country who feel disenfranchised in some way, okay? And and mm -hmm. I don't think right. that because that's an emotional thing, all right? They don't need truth. They just feel something. And I, I like to point out when my feelings are hurt about something that my, my feelings are real. You don't have to understand them. 
just because you don't sure. feel them or understand them doesn't mean they're not real. So obviously a lot of those feelings are based on, you know, misnomers with ideology and, and, and religion and, and lots of other things. So let's, race, let's kind of bring gender. this back. <laughs> right. Race. Gen, I mean, we, the laundry list is long. So let's bring it back to this potential Russian involvement into, you know, yeah. you know what we're talking about. I, I would agree with you. I definitely think the fake news and all of that. Now, how do we, if it comes out in these investigations, there's a couple investigations going on now, you know, within the government, allegedly, with regards to Russia's involvement. We have all these FOIAs out from journalists that are really fighting hard to to get some answers. And what if it comes out that it was an actual coordinated effort, a.k.a. some sort of conspiracy between Trump and Putin, or it was blackmail, as the dossier suggests? Um, so what if that's the case? And I know that this is not specifically your expertise, but what would the ramifications of something like that be, in your opinion, in this country? Because I would imagine yeah. if that became public, then we would be, in, and I feel we're a huge target right now, but I think that it would just explode. Load in in that realm, and I think that the internet would be a, a real quick way people would use. Hmm. Sherry, I'll tell you, as you correctly pointed out, this is this is not specifically my area of expertise, but it, you know, it's an, it, it, it's something that you know, if you're generally informed, I guess you can talk about. And and I think that the problem that we we face with something like this is that. We have rapidly moved into an area where where people view information that they don't like as alternative facts, right? So even right. if I mean it would it's helpful that that the Congress is entirely Republican because if the Senate investigatory committee actually comes up with something and as Republicans issues a report that it's going on, that's helpful, right? I mean, God help us right. if it were a bunch of Democrats doing it, because honestly, I don't think anybody would believe it on, on the other side of the aisle. So that's one huge problem. What, where, do we, where do we have information coming from that people will actually believe? That's the first part of it. But let's assume, you know, let's assume that, that some finding like that is made. I think the implication is actually global. And, and the reason mm -hmm. I say that is that you see Russia trying to run the same playbook right now in France. To a lesser degree, they're also trying to do it in Germany. I would argue that, that the response that you will end up seeing will be multilateral. It's a little, I mean, what Russia is doing electronically is the equivalent of going into Kuwait. Right. Right. And so you totally. need a you need a you need a multilateral response to basically right, no. make it clear that Russia is a bad actor. Now, you know, the question is whether or not this is a state sponsored operation, which has much bigger implications, or is this some kind of rogue element a la ISIS that, you know, Russia could theoretically claim deniability with respect to their behavior. Then it becomes a question of Basically, are they giving aid and comfort to a group that is causing international turmoil? Look, destabilization, this is, this is you know, ironically, there's a lot of parallels between Bannon and, and, and what Russia is doing, because Russia benefits from Western destabilization. If they're able to sow dissent and confusion using these kinds of fake news attacks and, and other forms of cyber warfare, then they lessen the ability of an organization, for instance, like NATO, to respond to what is going on in the Ukraine, which honestly, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Spinal Tap, but you know, Ukraine is rapidly being turned up to, a, it's being turned up to 11, right? The question yeah. is whether or not that's something that, that Western Europe will actually respond to in an organized fashion. So much as like Bannon is trying to destabilize the political environment in the United States for the purposes of, number one, providing aid and comfort to the hardcore theocratic religious right, or, you know, whatever other kind of schemes, you know, the alt-right kind of neo-Nazi movement that he's spirating. 
That's exactly what the Russians are trying to do with this whole fake news thing. Le Pen has already said that if she gets elected, she pulls out of NATO and potentially the EU. If France goes out, um, you know, whether or not that institution can survive is, is a really open question. And we have this enormous existential irony that Germany with, you know, hopefully Angela Merkel as, as its head, although that's, that's, you know, the next target, they become sort of the, the leader of the Western European forces, which has a whole host of ironies attached to it. Yeah, I, I just don't think people really understand how fast all of this could go south. Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't think that they realize. I mean, I myself didn't realize, uh, you know, Fred, I mean, that's the reality. I mean, that's basically what I was talking mm-hmm. about. Um, mm-hmm. that all this, like, since last Friday, I mean, everything just boom, 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 you know, and it's like, whoa, you know, yeah. uh, and, and me just, yeah. you know, one person in my show and, 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 and writing my shit and stuff. I'm like, I'm like, I can't keep up, you know, I'm sitting here before the last shows tonight and well, yesterday the and the point. day before. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's this fatigue and, you know, you can, you, you can only, you know, do so much. So right now from your, your, your expertise, biggest yeah. cyber threat, cyber threats right now to our country, national security, and then to the world as a whole, in your opinion. Well, the fake news right off the top is, is the biggest threat, you know, because that is a proven vector of disruption. And that's really the thing there. What what's affected? So that I think is is just exhibit number one of of how dangerous this can be. And and technically it's it's not a hacking thing. It's more of a it is more of a cyber warfare approach. We're going to you know destabilize your elections. We're going to undercut your belief in reality, which is really what they're doing. Right. So there's that. Right. The, the other thing that you're getting at, Sherry, uh, that I think you know, is an ongoing battle is the fundamental security of our infrastructure. And we're, we're in the process, right, of, of transitioning from the internet to the internet of things. And I'm just sitting here and I'm looking around what I would describe as a very 20, 20th century kitchen right? There's very little except my phone in this kitchen, which is directly connected to the internet. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, There's Alexa and there's my iPhone. That's about it. But within five, eight years, every single significant device that I'm looking at in this kitchen will be connected to the internet in some way. You know, theoretically, the, the fridge behind me will have sensors that will be keyed into some kind of tag on the food and the shelves will be able to weigh the food and determine whether or not I need more milk, more carrots, whatever. So the point of that being that in very short order, vast quantities of our lives, even more so now than we have now, will be online and potentially accessible by somebody who doesn't want to do nice things to us. And and you think about this. I mean, anybody who has seen their Windows operating system go through 35 to 40 minutes of upgrades every week in order to keep up with security patches, think about that right. multiplied by 1,000 or 10,000. It's, it's absolutely staggering. We're on the verge way faster than any of us realized with driverless cars. I mean, oh, for sure. you can, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're out in California, you know, you know that they're, they're being tested all the time. There are a number of communities that are, are, are dealing with these. There's two huge disruptions that come with that. Number one is obviously, you know, the poor SOBs who drive cars for a living, because if you look at what Uber has had to deal with in terms of sexual assaults, a driverless car will not sexually assault you. There's going right. to be motivation, right, to get the into something car, that driverless car doesn't <laughs> care who you voted for. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. You know, and you don't have to listen to their music. You don't have to listen to their whatever. So, believe me, driverless cars are a big upsell in terms of just 
yeah, routinely getting around the city. But, uh, gee, you know, Christ Almighty on a on a cracker. What if we, what if we have somebody hacking into these cars, or into some, you know, into Uber's servers or whoever is running a, a fleet of driverless cars, and they turn off the brakes or they accelerate every car, you know, by twenty percent. Come on, Fred, you, you know, you know, that can already be done with some vehicles with the onboard computers. That's not a conspiracy that is able to happen. Forbes and other other people have done video tests and have put it out there for sure. several years now. And so, I mean, we don't need driverless cars for that kind of stuff to happen. No, um, no. You know, but that's it, merely so funny. Right. Huh? That's I'm, I'm just ramp, I'm ramping up the consequences, but. But you know, look, driverless <laughs> cars are, are are a funny example. But the, the much more salient issue, of course, is our electrical grid, is our right. you know FAA FAA computers, it's the banking system, it's whatever, you know. And I know that there's a real cat and mouse game that is played out there between potential hackers and cybersecurity and so forth. Look, the 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 old saw with respect to all of this, and I think that this is where things get really nerve wracking, is that people who are trying to hack a system only have to be right once. The people trying to defend a system have to be right all the time. Exactly. And that's, not, that's with that, anything. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's with anything. That's a really good segue. I want to I want to jump from Trump and Russia to something that happens every day in America, something that, um, you know, we've all dealt with probably at one time or another uh, in our lives with with credit cards, bank cards, debit cards um, and stuff like that is there. There are a lot of other cyber crimes that are going on daily. Yeah. And um, and, and we're going to we're going to talk a little bit more about the quote unquote revenge porn in the end and child pornography which are definite cyber crimes. But let's right now, let's talk about merchant accounts and credit card scams. I had recently done an article. I had done a, a very long, extensive investigation that involved authorities and it involved allegedly um, people that were, you know, just <laughs> running a lot of cards for very, very large amounts of money. And in one particular case, I, I call the I call the people that have come forward, I call them accomplice victims because they were accomplices to a crime, but according to them, unknowingly, and therefore they believe that they were victims. And um, so one of the things is one of those particular people lives in uh, one state and the merchant account was being used and cards run it according to that person in another state. Now, something like that would be able to be proven, correct? Yeah, sure. I mean, <clears throat> you know, ideally, you know, when the, the feds are investigating something like that, you've got, you know, IP addresses, depending on how they're trying to run the cards. Um, there's almost certainly going to be some kind of electronic trail. It is possible to mask that, and and that's the the game that the FBI is constantly playing with with these folks. But in in the normal course of things, it's much easier to track down than than many criminals realize. So how how do um, people that you know are are into cyber forensics like you, computer forensics, mm -hmm. how do those sorts of crimes themselves, you know, credit card, I mean, they're just, you know, prolific. There's so many credit card scams out there and so many people get away with doing them simply because it really is the merchant, the merchant services company themselves that are usually out all the money, not the credit card companies, not even the credit card holder as the victim, um, mm -hmm. and usually yeah. not the person yeah. actually running the card illegally. So how how are those tracked? I mean, I mean, what you can say without giving away a bunch of secrets, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, for the purposes of this conversation, there isn't more. there isn't much to be given away, Sherry. But but look, honestly, you're. I, it's a little hard to answer that question only because the facts vary so much in terms of how people do this kind of thing. So let's, God, let's, let's just take two examples for the purpose of this. Number one, you know, an organization like Target or Kmart or Walmart or someone like that gets hacked, right? And you've got somebody who has either 
um, planted some kind of mole, electronic mole in the in the software in the server, um, or they actually break in using some kind of security flaw, and they download a massive, like hundreds of millions of credit card numbers and, and information and so on and so forth. Theoretically, you know, depending on how sophisticated the hackers are and how good the the technical response is you can trace the break you you know there's there's a variety of different tools that that law enforcement has available to it to try to figure out when the break-in occurred what tools were being used to do it where the tools were from then they also go and look for the database online and try to track it that way so there's that well um, i can tell you if i got to share this with you because i found i found it yeah a little humorous and I, and I feel bad for all the people involved. So I'm, I'm not laughing at them at all, but um, one mm. of the reasons that part of my investigation into the, the particular article I wrote was somewhat easy is that they definitely were not very computer savvy people. And um, you know, you can say your name is something else, but if you're using the same email address <laughs> yeah, right. for all these yeah. years under all these different names, you know, I mean, it's highly traceable. And when I'm doing an investigation, I, I do use, you know, paid services for backgrounds and stuff, including phone numbers, email addresses, whatever the case may be. And, um, yeah. you know, and that, and that's, it's, it's gotta be a special investigation, you know, something big for me to invest in that. But, you know, I mean, I don't think that people realize that you can use all sorts of different things free online but when you start getting into the nitty-gritty and utilizing sources and utilizing you know money to start digging in there and, and what's available it's like really quick um very very quick right. i mean one of the persons and in the stories you know been using an email address like i said for years and years and years and then so has another one with a different email address and oh and lo and behold it says two email addresses that were sending the you know allegedly sending the credit card numbers for you know like 10 years and uh but yet they're all these different people right <laughs> <laughs> right well and, i mean clear, so when I mean... it comes to the authorities that's like that's like just piece of cake work right that's yeah, that's basically like rolling out of bed in the morning. <laughs> I mean, when yeah. you're talking about the FBI, you're talking about the Treasury, you're talking about Secret Service. These are folks who have devoted a huge amount of money and resources into developing their computer skills over the last 20 years. Look, when I first started doing computer forensics um, back right around 2000, it was about the time that I had written my first book, Obscene Profits. And I actually got called down to the Justice Department to do a training for a bunch of assistant U.S. attorneys on how the adult industry worked online. And mm -hmm. it was remarkable that, that that kind of training was needed at that point. But I, <laughs> that there's been no need for that in the years since, because thanks to Congress and its, and its focus on particularly child pornography, the the computer resources that law enforcement has gotten, and a lot of it is spilled over, obviously, into financial crimes and hacking and so on and so forth. The financial resources are phenomenal. And I, I don't think that anybody should, should underestimate what the feds can do with respect to all of this. Now, the other scenario that I think is useful for listeners to be aware of is this idea of some individual reaching out to potential victims and getting information from them through a process known as phishing, um, which, you know, the old joke is that's not just abandoned Vermont anymore. It's actually a very sophisticated tool for getting the necessary information to make use of someone's financial data. And the, it's a form of what they, of what people refer to as social engineering. Uh, this idea that you can call up somebody, pretend to be, for instance, a, a, a field uh, technician for a phone company and get the user ID and the password for somebody you're quote unquote helping uh, with their computer, that kind of thing. Or you send an email to somebody who's vulnerable in some way, either they're older or they've got some kind of cognitive impairment, and it looks like it's from Bank of America or or City Corp or something like that, and they respond by giving their social security number, their password, what have you, and boom, someone's off to the races. Again, all of that 
potentially can be traced through the use of IP addresses, email addresses like you're doing, that kind of thing. Um, you know, a lot of it depends on how sophisticated the person who's committing the crime actually is. Well, th this is true. And, uh, you know, I, I'm fortunate because I, you know, I've, I've networked so well over the years and not just coming from, you know, corporate media way back in the day, but just the people I've networked with. And, you know, I have private investigators that, that I've gone to for different things. I've gone to you for different things. I've gone to Mark Zaid sure. and, and yeah. other people that I've brought on the yeah. show. So having that network of, of people to go to, to get real answers for things is really, really important. Um, I want to take, we only have a couple more minutes left, uh, Fred, before I move into the next segment. So I want to take a minute and I want to, you know, start addressing what we were talking about earlier with re regards to the revenge porn, which is really just an online sexual assault of a woman and um, the reason that this matters to me is that for a long time um, I had lived in an area in the desert of California that catered to um, Marine Corps Army and a Navy base mm -hmm. um, out there in 29 sure. Palms and after I had moved away, a lot of, you know, I ran a bar out there. And so a lot of people that I had stayed in contact with that were Marines, um, you know, of varying ages and varying ranks, I, over the years, I've gotten, I can't even tell you anymore how many uh, either Facebook messages or mm. um, texts particularly that are like they're just copying me on stuff and it's it's some they're like you know this chick uh cheated on her man while he was fighting for our country here's her you know spread it around mm. make her famous and this is like yeah. all the time i mean i it's crazy how that is and and i don't think that me having been somebody that was a, a child of, of of sexual assault um mm. you know i i obviously i'm more sensitive uh but sure. i think that there's a lack of that and when we have trump presidency right now that that just spews out the sex i mean come on let's face it he's the pussy grabber in chief right you know he's spewing all the sexism with his hatred on top of it i i foresee this problem getting worse with the revenge porn these yeah. these online sexual assaults so talk a little bit let's let's take about 60 seconds or so for you to talk about your idea and moving forward on that and then i want to talk a little bit about child pornography well great um couple of quick points on all of this for starters you'll get a chuckle out of the fact that i actually knit a pussy hat for somebody who marched in dc I was very proud oh of God. having done that. <laughs> so I want one. Yeah, I, I want one. I've got a, I've got hands-on investment in this. I do think that <laughs> it is important for us to. I, I do think it's important for us to call it electronic sexual assault because it's not pornography. It is an assault on a specific individual, and it's really, really, um, I think, horrifying that we have somehow elected somebody who tried to normalize this behavior, even if the only normalization was in what he thought was a private conversation with Billy Bush, which just the, the layers of irony, all of that are just staggering. But, See, this is I'm why sorry, I like you, for your personality shines through. It's the way my mind works. I, but look, you know, I, 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 you know, what can I say, Sherry? I have two fantastic sisters. I have five wonderful, wonderful nieces. I have, you know, two sons, four, well, four sons by marriage and, and, you know, a couple of other three nephews. How the environment in which they are raised is important to me. And you know, just by way of example, my the older of my two sisters has never been political until this election. And she has twin daughters and she is furious, you know, because th this is the environment, right, in which they are being raised. And yeah, it is the kind totally of thing that you, okay. would, you, you would like it to say totally we're not beyond okay. that. Right, right. It's 
Right, exactly. And Fred, it's totally not okay for anybody in any yeah. United States government position, low or high, to make a comment about a, a, a juvenile that they're going to be screwing them in 10 years. That's not okay. Plain and simple. Fred, um, right. you got 30 seconds. If you can really quickly, I want to touch base on child pornography because it really isn't also, it's not pornography. It is a crime. It is sexual, child yes. sexual abuse imagery. It is documentation yep. of that crime. It lives on in perpetuity. It's one of your specialties. 30 seconds, Fred. Real quick, um, just so everybody is absolutely clear on the work that I do, I've done computer forensics for the last almost 20 years. To be fair, a lot of my work has been with criminal defense attorneys because I am not law enforcement and there are not a lot of people who do this independently. Um, if anybody is interested, I just uploaded a presentation I did to federal public defenders in Knoxville, Tennessee. I believe passionately in the right to a zealous defense. I also believe passionately in working to eliminate child pornography as a form of assault on people. So there's a there's obviously a tension there, but I think that we need to respect the Constitution, and we need to also educate people and prosecute where necessary. Absolutely. Uh, Fred, for the past year, has been helping me educate people about a lot of these problems. Fred, thank you so much. We definitely have to do this again soon. I want to stay on this Trump thing and the whole cybersecurity thing. So let's uh, let's get together off, off air and talk about the next date to have you on. I really appreciate you so much. You're fantastic, Sherry. Let's try to do this monthly because there's going to be a lot to talk about. So I'm, I'm on board for that. You heard it. Fred Lane's going to be joining us again. Thanks, Fred. You have a great night. Same to you, Sherry. There's no place for complacency in a country on the brink. We all have a civic responsibility to pay attention to what goes on in our country and to participate in the political system. Seek facts and truths, whether we like them or not. When our government becomes a bully, unchecked, and out of control, it endangers our very existence via an agenda of arrogance, hate, fear. Our civic responsibility then becomes a moral obligation of which we all bear. Endless debates are meant to crown winners and losers. They're not for solutions. Many of the decisions that I make impact you, and some of the decisions that you make impact me. We are all truly in this together. If we really are one nation under God, then what is bad for me is also bad for you. And just as I should care, you should also care too. To the countless thousands of Americans who are occupying airports and streets in protest against this administration's very foolhardy and dangerous executive orders, and to those who are speaking out against the un unconstitutional crimes that are happening here in America, thank you for doing it right. And thank you to those journalists that are doing it right, like Politico's Josh Gerstein and other journalists in the FOIA lawsuits that are trying to get to the bottom of Russia's involvement with Trump, Russia's involvement with our country, and other things that are going on with this Trump administration. People like our former acting attorney general, Sally Gates, whom we discussed last night, as well as other people that are still holding office or positions of power or have some sort of platform, like House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi, who today said, What's making America less safe is to have a white supremacist National Security Council as a permanent member, while the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the director of national intelligence is told, don't call us, we'll call you. She was speaking to Steve Bannon, the former head of Breitbart News, currently Trump's chief strategist. And even a thanks to the ever wishy-washy tough guy, Senator John McCain, former POW. At least he had the class to call Australia to try to smooth things over after our joke of a president had the audacity to hang up on our longtime ally because he was tired. Hey, look, our words in, you know, in our many, many, many different voices, they all have power. That's just the way it is. They have power. So what impact are your words making in this world, in your community, in your home, right there in your home? We all have to take responsibility for all of the propaganda that we participate in, whether we're creating it or curating it or just reading it, whatever the case may be, this endless cycle of click, like, share, it's just like our shampoo, lather, rinse, repeat. Someone is selling something. Are we really any better for it? If you know someone who is doing it right, email me at challengingtherhetoric at yahoo.com. That's it for me tonight.
I will be back live next week, Wednesday for sure, with the Center for Biological Diversity, Ryan Beam. We're going to be talking about what President Trump is doing with the EPA. I might do a show between now and then. I don't know yet, but for sure on Wednesday, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Until then, be kind to one another. If you like what I'm doing, please share the links. Gratuities to the CTR PayPal are also very much appreciated. If you missed part of tonight's show or any of the others, you can find the archive and the PayPal link on the website at challengingtherhetoric.news. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>